Um, if you will, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Um, I talked to Chris over the, this last week, and I know you guys have been going through 1 Peter. And uh, I know 1 Peter is heavy and suffering and, and uh, difficulty. And so in praying with him, we just thought, like, what if we just did something refreshing? And Psalm 1 is beautiful. So while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I've been on staff at Reality LA for almost eight years now. I serve as the pastor for equipping and ministry training. So all of our theology classes, our internship program, kind of our leadership development stuff. And I've been married for eight years to my wife, Katie. We've got three boys, Asher, Judah, and Cannon, um, who are up in kids ministry right now. I'm really excited for, for, for them to just kind of experience um, church with their Santa Barbara family, their church family here. We've got a, a, a brand new uh, parakeet named Scully, uh, after Vin Scully, of course. Um, some of you are Dodger fans, you understood that. Um, but I was actually born in Santa Barbara. I was born here in Santa Barbara. I spent the first few years of my life living uh, right behind Dos Pueblos High School. I learned to swim at the DP pool before they completely remodeled it. And, um, and my parents moved to Lompoc, where I, I grew up, and I ended up going to Lompoc High School. But I've played water polo at San Marcos High School, at Santa Barbara High School, at DP High School. Like, I've, I, I've, I've, I've played here. I've been, I love this city. I still have a lot of family here in Santa Barbara. Um, in fact, my wife and I, we had our first date at Pescucci's on State Street. <laughs> we had our last date at Pescucci's on State Street, and I proposed to her on the breakwater. Um, so even though I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm coming to my hometown. Um, so if I'm anything like Jesus, you'll all reject me, and I won't be able to do many miracles. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys got that. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Psalm chapter 1, we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, refresh your people today. Father, refresh your church. Lord, there are some deep, special, amazing truths in this passage that when delighting in you, we will be like trees planted by streams of water. Lord, drawing our life, drawing our refreshment, drawing our source from the living waters. And I pray that for your church today. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. Lord, would you teach us would you encourage us? Would you refresh us? And would you be glorified in this place? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, do you ever remember playing with a compass as a kid? I remember playing with a compass, and it wasn't until, like, last year that I realized I was doing it wrong. 
Um, I always wanted to get the needle pointing in the direction that I wanted to go, and for some reason I never realized that that might work for north and south, but it gets completely backwards with east and west, and so I was doing it completely, completely wrong. I'm supposed to get the needle pointing north, and then you can orient yourself to the rest of the directions. I think that's a helpful way to view Psalm 1. There's going to be seasons in our life when we resonate with the truths of Psalm 1. We're, we're, we're pointed north. You know, we know where we are. We've got some perspective. But there's going to be seasons in life when we feel a long way off from what this psalm says should be true of us. I'm sure even in this room right now, this, this passage brings a lot of emotion. Sometimes you're going to be reading it and, and, and you're in a season in life that seems to affirm what this passage says. And praise God. But some of you, no doubt, are coming into this, you're hearing this, and you're like, I don't feel like a tree planted by streams of water. I don't feel like, I feel like my leaf is withering. What is happening? And you're struggling to find how your current circumstances fit into the psalmist's prose. Whatever our circumstances, the psalm gives us true north. It shows us where we're going. And at times we find ourselves in different places, and when we do, it's a compass letting us know that we are still on the right course. doesn't necessarily get us home right away, but it keeps us on the path. It's like a spiritual mall directory, letting you know in the chaos and, and conflict of life that you are here. And from that point, you can find whatever destination you're trying to get to. However, the psalmist says that there's two ways of life. There's the way of the righteous, and then there's the way of the wicked, And each of these ways of life have their own end. They have their own results. But the way that we choose to follow, surprisingly, is going to be determined by our understanding of this very first word of our psalm, the very first word of the book of Psalms, blessed. This sermon is not entitled hashtag blessed. Every single person on earth desires something. Every single person on the planet desires something. Sometimes we know what those desires are. We can articulate what those desires are. But sometimes they're hidden down so deep within us that we can't quite explain what it is we're reaching for. Sometimes we have multiple desires. And for a time, they're allowed to coexist. But sometimes, eventually, one desire is going to have to win out over another desire. They conflict. They're incompatible. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. One is going to have to win out eventually. Some people achieve their desires and some people never will. But we will spend our lives trying. Hollywood is a place that makes huge promises. And people come from all over the world to fulfill their desires, but Hollywood rarely keeps its promises. And so I live in a land of broken dreams. I know so many people, though, who have come to L.A. to make a name for themselves, to find fame, but Jesus finds them first. And a lot of people are still working in the industry, but now they do it from a perspective of trying to make Jesus famous. And so in the brokenness of their dreams, the gospel shines so bright. We all desire something. 
And many times our desires are external. We want money or possessions, romantic relationships, social status, popularity, whatever it may be. But these are usually just signs pointing to something deeper within us, something internal, self-worth, meaning, purpose in life, love. And our experience of blessing is inextricably linked to how near or far we feel from attaining those desires. If our hope in life is financial stability, then we will feel unstable until we achieve it. Fortunately for us, the biblical use of the word blessing is not as subjective. Maybe the easiest way to understand the biblical use of the word blessed is is contentment or happiness that is a result of being connected to the ultimate source of good in God himself. That's what it means to be blessed. In scripture, blessedness isn't a product of our external circumstances. It's a profound contentment in spite of our circumstances because God has given himself to his people. And so this word is way too important to flippantly hashtag on pictures of latte art or Chick-fil-A in L.A. I don't know. Do you guys have Chick-fil-A in Santa Barbara? I don't get the point. I don't understand what's so good. It's chicken, pickle, soggy bun. Anyway. Uh, or the new Pokemon you just evolved, right? I, I hashtag blessed. I did a search this last week. Those were the three things that consumed the feed. Chick-fil-A, lattes, Pokemon. It is way, way too important to use in that way. To use the directory analogy again, our understanding of blessedness determines the point on the map where we wish to be. So if I go to the mall with my three sons, then our source of blessing is at the Lego store. But if I need an Apple genius, Legos can't help me. And so depending on what I need, depending on what I desire... It'll determine what I regard as being blessed. If my pursuit is directed toward his kingdom and his righteousness, then my life is going to take a very particular shape. But if I'm bent on fulfilling my own kingdom, then it's going to look very different. The psalmist gives us a a vision of the blessed life and invites us to pursue it. He also gives us a stark description of the alternative along with hazards to avoid. The psalm is like the Waze app, not only telling us how to get where we're going, but what hazards to avoid. And in our psalm, we're immediately confronted with the hazards along the way. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Like traveling to any destination, we need the right directions. When I was 19, I spent a week in Dublin, and so my friends and I were trying to find a restaurant, and this was before iPhones, and so we found this sweet older woman, and we asked her, hey, how do you get to this place? And she says, well, first you're going to take the next three lefts. And believing the best in people, we're like, okay, well, maybe it'll make sense when we get there. And it didn't. We could have literally just taken a right. And then later on in the trip, we were trying to find another place. And so we remembered our previous experience and we were like, okay, well, maybe we'll talk to this police officer. Maybe that'll be a little more trustworthy source of directions. And he says, all right, you're going to stay down this road and the road is going to fork to the left and to the right. You stay straight. (laughs) And wanting to believe the best in people, we said, well, maybe it'll make sense when we get there. And it didn't. It was like, it was like, maybe one will be more straight than the other. It wasn't. We never got where we were going. To find the right directions, we need a trustworthy source. 
We need to trust the source giving us the directions. And if we open ourselves up to faulty sources of directions, we're bound to get lost. And so pursuing the blessed life is not only seeking good counsel, but also rejecting wicked counsel. There cannot be any confusion of the two. The way of the righteous is incompatible with the way of the ungodly. And the psalmist uses three negatives to emphasize his point. Sir Richard Baker commented on this by saying, negative precepts are in some cases more absolute than affirmatives. For to say that hath walked in the counsel of the ungodly might not be sufficient, for he might walk in the counsel of the godly and yet walk in the counsel of the ungodly too. Not both indeed at once, but both at several times, where now this negative clears him at all times. The pursuit of godliness must come along with it a rejection of all other alternatives. You can't pursue a healthy lifestyle by eating McDonald's every day. It will at best significantly diminish your hard work, but most likely you're going to die. The truth, the truth is there are influences all around us. You are being influenced constantly by a variety of sources that may or may not be godly. The films we watch, the music we listen to, the magazines we read are all telling us, giving us a picture of worldly blessedness. This is who we should be. This is how we should look or act. This is what we should wear or what we should have. And it preaches a message that says that we will be less than fulfilled until we achieve these things. There are there's, a multiple, there's multiple degrees by which we participate in this ungodly counsel. And these are indicated by the verbs walk, stand, and sit in this passage. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to allow the direction of our steps to be influenced more by the world rather than the way of Christ. We may not even be aware of how these contradictory influences are affecting us or having an influence on us. I come in contact with this on a regular basis. One of my responsibilities in LA is premarital counseling. And I meet a lot of men, future husbands, whose whose expectations of marriage and sex are more influenced by pornography than they are scripture. I meet a lot of men and women who are being more influenced in that direction. I meet a lot of men and women whose ideas of love are more influenced by the world than what the Bible says about love. Love isn't a feeling that we fall in and out of, right? Love is a commitment to do something. It's a commitment to sacrifice yourself in pursuit of your spouse despite how you feel. Your vows are not a promise to feel something. They're a promise to do something despite how you feel. In these cases, people still love Jesus. People who are walking in the counsel of the wicked, they can still love Jesus. They're still trying to pursue him, but we're sometimes not even aware of how the world is pushing us this way and that. We're being influenced in all directions, and this is a warning to be aware, to discern what is of God and what is not, and to walk accordingly. To stand in the way of sinners is a bit more resolved of a posture. Throughout scripture, to stand is to imply to be firmly fixed, right? To stand firm. To stand is is to be planted. And while we need to be careful not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, we must also recognize that there's areas of our lives where our feet are a bit more firmly fixed than we would like to believe. Do you get defensive when a brother or sister comes to you with concerns about your sin? 
Do you justify your sin or make excuses for why it's not wrong or why it's a, at this point in your life it's a necessary evil? You might be standing a little more firm in the way of sinners than you want. Again, you may still want to pursue Jesus, but you're giving the world a louder voice than the Bible in these particular areas of your life. To sit in the seat of scoffers is the height of arrogance and sin. This person no longer is just comfortable with their sin, but have consciously chosen it over and against the truths of the law of the Lord. And now they no longer merely participate, but to sit is specifically to take the seat of a teacher. Right? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down to teach them. In the ancient world, teachers actually sat while their students stood so to sit in the seat of scoffers is to, actually, to actively participate in the misleading of others. Concerning those who lead others to sin, Jesus said that it would be better for them to have a large millstone tied around their neck and to be dropped in the depths of the sea. Death, and, and a, a horrible death at that, would be better for someone than to lead others into sin and make a mockery of grace. In all of this, we need to recognize that this is not a call to separate yourself from these kinds of people, right? Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This isn't a call to separate yourselves from them. This is a call to not be influenced by them, but rather we are to be, the, the blessed life is one that is influenced by the law of the Lord, The psalmist contrasts the negative postures, these negative postures of walking, standing, and sitting with the the righteous postures. He says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We need to talk about this for a little bit because the New Testament church doesn't often like the word law. We're not under law, but under grace, absolutely, we don't want to be legalistic. We want to be, we want to be led by grace. But the word law is more simply understood as the Lord's instruction. And in David's day, the Lord's instruction was the book of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that described how God chose for himself a people and gave them his law. But on this side of the cross, the Lord's instruction is the law of Christ. It's it's God's instruction to us that Christ came to fulfill the law on our behalf and die as a substitute for us lawbreakers. And so what does it mean to delight in God's law? Although Leviticus is beautiful and without it, we would not understand the depths of our sin, nor would we understand how beautiful a savior Jesus is. But it doesn't mean that every time we read Leviticus, it needs to stir our affections. Rather, delighting in God's law is delighting in the whole of God's word, which ultimately points us to the word that became flesh. By pursuing God as our ultimate desire, we are able to reject the counsel of the wicked. And we delight in the instruction that leads us into a deeper communion with Jesus. In believing that he is the source of our blessing, we meditate on his word. And there's another word, right, with some baggage, right? Meditation. Let's talk about that for a minute. Meditation is a good thing and all of you should do it. And before you send this weirdo back to L.A., let me explain what I mean. 
John 1, 8 says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. The word meditation occurs almost 20 times in the book of Psalms. But I know what we think about when we think of meditate, right? We think of some mystical navel gazing where we empty our minds and try to transcend the physical world, right? That's transcendental meditation. That's not what we're talking about, and the Bible has nothing to do with it. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind, but filling your mind with God's word. Biblical meditation is a sustained reflection on a spiritual truth or reality as revealed in Scripture. We read Scripture, but meditation is when Scripture reads us. We look into Scripture like a mirror. We see who God is and we see who we are in light of who God is. In truth, we naturally meditate on the things that we desire. We meditate on the things that we desire. Think about the content of your daydreams. Or maybe some of you don't. What is it? Is it a, is it a, is it a love interest? Is it, is it you daydream about getting a promotion at work? What, what, a, a new car, whatever it is. The, the content of our daydreams are the things that we delight in and we're meditating on them. We're filling our minds with those things. What do you fill your mind with? The blessed man is the one who delights in God's law, and so meditation is not a struggle, but he joyfully delights, meditates on the the law of the Lord day and night. And when we contrast this delight, and when we contrast meditate with the postures of the wicked, right away we need to recognize that delighting and, and meditating, as opposed to walking, standing, and sitting, are receptive activities. Walking, standing, and sitting are very outward and active. Delighting and meditating are very inward and receptive. And so what do I mean by that? Why is that important? How do we come to delight in a song? An artist takes their experience and their emotion and they put it to words and to music and then we receive it by listening to it and it stirs our affections. My wife and I were driving to a vacation. We, we recently vacationed at June Lake up in the eastern Sierras, and we were driving up there and driving through the, the, the awful part of California. You know what I'm talking about? Like before you get to the mountains, um, people think California is beautiful, but basically the beach and the mountains, that's, that's it. The rest of it is, you can skip it. We're driving through there, and so there's a lot of country stations. And I grew up on country, and I love country music, but I don't anymore because it's very different than what I grew up on. And so I was telling her about that, and I was telling her about the beautiful country ballads that I grew up with. And I remember telling her about this one particular song, and, and I was like, I just got to play this for you. And I started playing it for her. I started weeping as I was driving. Just something about the song connected me to a time in my life and circumstances. And, and, and I, like, I, was, I was literally telling her this story and I was like, I don't know why I'm crying. But I was receiving the song. I was listening to it and it was stirring my emotions. It was stirring my affections. And so how do we delight in God's law? God puts his nature and his character into words. And we receive it by reading it and it connects with us and it stirs our affections. We receive it from the Lord. And if we take a step further, we recognize that delighting in God's law is, is, is receptive because we can't delight in the Lord lest the Lord had delighted in us first. Right? We love because God first loved us. 
So why is this significant? Because the blessed life is blessed not because of anything that it does. The blessed life is blessed not because of anything that it does, but because of what and who it receives. The wicked reject God's law and so have rejected him. Those who receive God's law have received him. In the same way, we can't meditate on the law of the Lord day and night unless he had given it to us and we've received it from him and we've meditated on it. I say all this because we cannot leave this place thinking that there are two ways of life and righteousness is mustering up the ability to reject the one and choose the other. That is not it at all. If we were saved by the quantity of our delight or the frequency of our meditation, we would all in this room be condemned. But salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is what God does. We don't make it happen. We receive it from him. The reason we're blessed if we do these things is because we are functioning the way that God created us to function. If you ever tried to hammer a nail with an iPhone, of course not. It would be dumb. You would, you would break the phone in the process. It's not what it's made for. We drive nails with a hammer. It's what it was made for. It was, it's more efficient that way. You will destroy your phone. So why would we think life would go better for us by living outside of God's intended purpose for us? We were designed to receive our life from him. We were designed to delight in him. That's what we were made for to enjoy God as our heavenly father, why would we think life would go any differently for us, any better for us, functioning outside of our intended purpose? It's like trying to hammer a nail with a cell phone. It's just going to be bad. As God's children, we are designed to receive from him and to delight in him. Specifically here, the blessed man delights in his law. The law being a reflection of, of his nature and character, delighting in the law of the Lord is to delight in the Lord himself, the lawgiver who has given himself to us. The psalmist gives us a picture of how these two ways of life produce very different results. But this time he begins with the positive. He says, of the blessed man, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We don't have a lot of streams of water in Los Angeles. We have the LA River, but anything planted in it or near it is poisoned for sure. Um, you can actually kayak in the LA River now if you want to glow in the dark. I don't recommend it. But normally where there is water, there is life. Where there is water, there is life. And a tree planted by streams of water is an incredible picture of peace and, and health. And life as it draws its source of life from the abundance of the, the streams. It's planted, it's rooted, it's deeply connected to the nutrients of the soil and the water that brings the nutrients to, through the branches and ultimately to produce fruit. Among the, the reality churches, we like to say a lot that, that ministry flows from intimacy. Right, that ministry is this natural byproduct of our enjoying Jesus. The fruit of our lives comes from being connected to the source of life. And so worship and good works and ministry and mission don't come to us by mustering up our efforts. Have you ever walked through the woods and, and heard a tree grunting like a crossfitter just trying to make an apple? 
run. Don't eat that apple. Something has gone terribly wrong. Trees don't have to like work to produce fruit. It comes naturally. And so fruit comes naturally to us when we're enjoying Jesus. The truth is many of our attempts for ministry and mission and good works look more like a wooden sign nailed to a dead tree pointing people to Jesus from a long way off. But ministry and and good works and mission come from enjoying Jesus, being with him and invite, enjoying Jesus in such a way that invites people to enjoy him with you. Not saying Jesus is over there, but come check this out. Look who I found. Connected to the source of life, enjoying him and inviting others to enjoy him with you. Compare that, that fruit to the produce of the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the thin husk around a a kernel of grain that needs to be separated from the seed in in the process of threshing, right? We hear about threshing in the Bible a lot. The chaff is then separated from the seed by by a process called winnowing. And, and they, they have like a pitchfork and they throw the seed and the chaff in the air and the wind drives the, the chaff away while the denser seed falls back to the ground. In other words, the produce of the life of the wicked is of no substance. It's, it's good for nothing, only to be burned. In Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A life of rejecting the author of life is of no substance. It is of no value. And in the end, will be left to, inst- to destruction. The life that, that pursues a kingdom that is contrary to Christ's kingdom, will be wiped away. It's of no value because it will not exist. The the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Like the chaff, they will be blown away. There are two ways of life led by two opposite influences with two very different results. But the truth is, in our lives... In my life, in your life, sometimes one plus one does not seem to equal two. Some of you are delighting and meditating in the law of the Lord and your life feels nothing like this. You feel like your your leaf is withering. Some of us are not delighting in God at all. We're struggling. We're struggling with doubt. We're struggling with sickness, with affliction. We're struggling understanding why he would allow certain things into our lives. Maybe you haven't opened a Bible outside of a Sunday gathering in months. And then you see people in this world, maybe even people in this room, who who are scoffing at God, making a mockery of the things of the Lord, and yet everything seems to be going right for them. One plus one does not seem to equal two. What about the family who loses a child? What about broken marriages and broken families? What about injustice? What about death? What about sickness, destruction? What about the sand fire in LA right now that's just wiping out homes? What is going on? We come to God and we say, God, I'm reading. I've got my Bible in hand. I'm reading. I'm trying to delight. I'm trying to meditate. What in the world is going on? Why don't I see streams of water? Not only am I not planted, I don't even see see them. I don't even know where to go to get them. 
I don't feel like my life is blessed. What am I doing wrong? How many times in this last you know, year or so of your life have you ever come to God and said, God, what am I doing wrong? I don't get this. I don't understand what's going on. And I want to encourage you that you are in good company. The psalmist himself reflects on these truths. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous perish? Why do I see that happening everywhere? Job wrestled with the same questions as did many of the prophets. But we are in even greater company. Because remember, the psalm is like a compass. And it is pointing us north. Pointing to the one in whom we trust. We come to the last verse of our psalm. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Not because he created the map, although he did, but because he walked it. Even more, he is the way of the righteous. And suddenly, this last verse gives some clarity to the first verse. Jesus is the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Jesus is the blessed man who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Jesus is the blessed man who delights himself in the law of the Lord. Jesus is the blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night because he is the word of God. He didn't just delight in the law, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. Jesus is the true blessed man of this psalm. But he was the blessed man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the blessed man who became sin, though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The blessed man who was cursed for every time we failed in righteousness. We recognize that Jesus is the blessed man. He's not a blessed man. He's not one of many. He's the one the psalm is talking about. He is the blessed man. And the rest of us, if Jesus is the blessed man, the rest of us, we fall into that second category. All of us, if left to our own desires, if left to our own purposes, we're with the wicked. We're like chaff. Be honest with yourself. If Jesus is the blessed man, we are all going the way of the wicked. We have no hope but to be blown away like chaff. We have no hope of ever being planted by streams of water except for the fact that though Jesus is the living water, he was nailed to the tree. He was crucified like the wicked so that the wicked could be blessed. The blessed life is a life that died in our place. And so the presence of suffering in our lives does not necessarily contradict blessing. And in a lot of cases, sometimes it confirms it. Because if we look like Jesus... 
we pursue Jesus, if we follow him, if we learn from him, if we imitate him, we're going to look like him. The world is going to see that and they're going to treat us like they treated him. So suffering is not necessarily a contradiction of the blessed life. Sometimes it confirms that it's truly blessed. Only the one who has received the blessed grace of God in Christ can truly pick up their cross and follow him. The pursuit of the blessed life is a pursuit of Jesus. We follow him. We learn from him. We imitate him. He is the instruction of the Lord in whom we delight. He is the living water, our very source of life. He is our savior, the one who gave us his blessing that he deserved and received our curse. So that despite our circumstances, whatever is going on in our lives, because of Jesus, we can confidently cling to Christ and know that we are blessed in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We are so thankful for you, Lord, that we deserve by our actions to be assigned a place with the wicked. You are the only one who deserved to be assigned a place of blessing, and yet you switched places with us. And Lord, we, we don't even know how to thank you. We want to, we want to enjoy you. We want to just in, enjoy the fact that you have laid your life down for us and we're going to do that right now. We want to worship you, Lord. We pray, God, for my brothers and sisters at this time that you would refresh us. Lord, give us a glimpse of the tree planted by streams of water. Lord, give us a glimpse of leaf that does not wither. Remind us, encourage us, strengthen us when we doubt, when we see suffering, when we see difficulty. Remind us of our true north. And encourage us that, that, that you are with us, or that you are our guide in this. Would we pray for Santa Barbara? Pray that your name would be lifted high in this place as, as people worship here, as people worship in other churches, Lord. We love them, we love you, and we pray that you would be exalted in this place, that your name would be regarded as holy, and that your will would be done in Santa Barbara and in Los Angeles and in the world as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.